Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Richard Rellis. Richard has been a reporter and Metro columnist at the Arizona Republic for in the neighborhood of 30 years. He has moderated debates, written a book, and also reported and anchored a podcast series about a murdered Arizona journalist, Don Bowles. And he's an adjunct professor at Arizona State. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Before we get into everything you've done, we got to get into everything that kind of leads up to that. What's your journalism origin story? I think I look back to being raised in a household that received two newspapers every day, the the Tempe Daily News in the morning and the Phoenix Gazette, which was the afternoon paper, a little cheaper than the Arizona Republic, in the afternoon. And I think just having that was just part of the daily routine was was reading newspapers. I was the first in my family to go to college, and I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to study. But once I found journalism, that this was actually something I could do, it, it struck. This was has been great. I've never never looked back. So you grew up, just to, to paint the picture for us, you grew up in Tempe in the 70s and 80s? Uh, correct. Yeah. Correct. And so, right, just it, it was, it's, it's kind of weird to say this now that I've been at the paper for so long, but I didn't think that there was actually a path to get into the newsroom like it was it was not something you know i didn't know anybody else who was a reporter none of my family members or anything and so i think being able to to actually do it first in college and then internships and and getting in there was a brief stint at the associated press here in phoenix before i started at the gazette in the arizona republic and i now am part of a, a local latino journalism group and we go to high schools and we invite high school students to to be part of this so that they know this that there's a path forward on this was there anything in your upbringing that lent itself if not to journalism to telling stories not necessarily this is where i'd hit the cultural cue and tell you about not really <laughs> i think it was more just the the idea of anything of just being what my mom would call him a Thichi or a Barinsky, like wanting to know what's going on you know behind the curtain wanting to, to peek in, and then being able to tell people about it. Okay, so can you explain the evolution of your career? You mentioned the brief stop at the Associated Press, but I guess with the, the key point being, why have you stayed at the Arizona Republic for as long as you have? I guess I've stayed because they've always made it nicer when I had an opportunity to go. You know, early on, I had job offers in other cities, and this was back when the journalism industry was doing a little better than it is now. And they would make it nicer for me to stay. I also think by this time in my career, wherever I was at, I probably would have been looking to come back closer to home. So I've stayed. It's a great journalism city. The city has become like a big city around me. Like it, it suddenly I live in a, one of the largest cities in North America and I take a, a light rail to and from downtown most some days and you know, I mean, there's just a lot of growth here, and it's been a great place to uh, to practice news, to practice journalism. 
So you cover big stories. You cover top political stories. You cover stuff related to January 6th. One piece that you did last fall, just to provide a, a simple example, a behind-the-scenes look at how Charlie Kirk's organization, Turning Point USA, and the Republican Party in Arizona were basically indistinguishable from one another. What kind of reporting goes into that? It's it's a It sounds like a lofty idea of like, oh, how do we get inside turning point? How do we look at the Republican Party? How do we do it? But the fundamentals are the same. The reporting of that, they held a bunch of get out the vote rallies and I made it my mission to be at each one of them. Even if they didn't want me there to the point of at one calling the Mesa Police Department on myself and, in, and in the two photographers who were there. The, photog the police department came and saw we were doing nothing wrong by covering a political rally in a public park. But just digging through documents, talking to people, and attending events sort of help piece this puzzle together. Getting people to, to trust you, even though maybe Turning Point was a little hostile at times. I did get interviews with the major, you know, major player, Tyler Boyer, who did speak to me about, about what, their, what their aim was. And you sort of follow a bit of intuition and, and get people to tell you what's really going on. Now, your state has had some interesting things happen in it with regards to the Republican Party. You had Carrie Lake running for governor. How, before we get into her, and I do want to get into her covering her campaign briefly, what's the difference between now versus the McCain Republican years trying to cover political events in the state? I think generally, and even back to I mean, there were there. It's always been contentious, and especially if you are going after, you know, a, a politician's hypocrisy or something like that. It's always contentious. But before, they would always want to speak with you, always want to get their their side out through you. Now, there is some cachet in ignoring the republic or mainstream media. Carrie Lake famously refused to speak to the Republic specifically, but a lot of, you know, she was very hostile to, to mainstream press. And that seemed to be some something of her political strategy. Now, you as we said, you did you did have to cover her events. You covered, I noticed that you got creative a little bit in the ways that you did cover her. For example, you watched her covering elections as a TV anchor, as one story. What was the experience of trying to cover her campaign specifically, where all those roadblocks were thrown in front of you? What was that like? Yeah, and I was sort of tangential to the coverage because I came at it by covering a lot of the Turning Point Charlie Kirk rallies, and she was an attendee there. So the main heavy lifting was done by our gubernatorial reporter, Stacey Bartringer, who took a lot of shots, who had a lot of times where she was at a news conference and would, it was her turn to ask a question, but Carrie Lake would say, no, I'm not speaking to the Republic. She really took a lot of the slings and arrows that, that, that were there. And I couldn't imagine had the election gone the other way, what it would have been like to spend four years or eight years covering an administration that is openly hostile to you. I had very few relative interactions with Carrie Lake, and I never actually 
tried for a one-on-one interview. She is someone who, like being a longtime reporter, we sort of saw and knew and was in sort of the sphere. This was a changed person, someone who suddenly said, I don't think that what I'm doing is honest anymore. And so I'm going to denounce the media and my former employer and job as part of my strategy. That was some someone that a lot of longtime reporters just didn't recognize this person anymore. What are some of the teaching moments that came from everything that I've brought up so far, like things that you might advise someone who was younger or someone who was uh, just going into this and said, hey, I want to cover these big things. Is there something from that 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 you would advise? Well, I would say the fundamentals of the job don't change. And, And when I do teach at Arizona State's Cronkite School, and often it's the basic news reporting class, I let the students know that this is like also a time to figure out if you like this, because if you don't want to hold a notebook in your hand and write down what people say and ask people questions, well, then you know this isn't for you because the, that's it. That's what the job is. Whether you're covering the governor's race or a school board or anything, I mean, the, the fundamentals of the job don't change. So it's just being there, getting people to trust you. I, I will do a bit, and I know sometimes with the younger generation, objectivity takes a hit and we're not supposed to want to be objective, I still find it important to, however you feel personally about an issue, to truly understand the other side of it, to really inhabit the mindset of people who you might not agree with if you weren't doing this as for a living, people you might not talk to if you didn't do this for a living, to really understand where people are coming from. I think it's more interesting to write a story that's a little more gray than black and white. What was the readership response like to the political coverage, the political news coverage that you guys did this year? Seemingly positive. Uh, And a lot of the people who I wrote about thought they were were treated fairly. And it seemed like there was a, the reaction from those who were sort of the, the Goldwater McCain longtime Arizona Republicans seemed to appreciate that someone told the story from the inside about how the party had changed. And some of the things I I did say about how, say, elections, I mean, minute stuff about how elections were held during the state party convention, those were changed. Uh, The next time the convention came around, they changed some of the procedures that I had written about to try to make it as transparent as possible, because there were some folks who were saying, you know, it seems like a lot of the party leadership ballots were counted in a back room somewhere. And so they they took efforts to make it so that no one could make that allegation again. Whether it's the Senate, the Senate race, the governor race, whichever, whatever political news that you've covered in the last year or two, is there anything that you've done that you're particularly, that you're particularly proud of? There was, and again, sometimes with this, it's, it's what our sources will do you know give us but in trying to look at turning points ties to christian nationalism there was a a pastor who had a church down the street essentially from where turning point holds a lot of its faith events a mega church called dream city and he agreed to speak with me about how he was losing his flock to this mega church that was 
preaching what he saw as a false version of, of Christianity. And for someone to be able to, to lay that out, I mean, this is very, you know, it can be explosive high level stuff, but he was able to, to walk me through it. And I think that that story of, of how Christianity was being used and how religion and politics were being entwined, I think was what I was aiming for when I started looking at that organization. This is several months ago. We had Ted Brightus on from the University of Florida, who, among other things, besides being an investigative editor in his career, had he was someone who called elections for AP. And we had a really interesting discussion about the process of doing that. In your case, you do something that goes beyond reporting in that you moderate debates. And you've had a few prominent ones. You regularly serve as a debate moderator. One that you moderated this past cycle was for Arizona's Secretary of State, the Democrat Adrian Fontes, against a conservative Republican, Mark Fincham, who happened to be in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Their debate was intense. So I'm curious, what do you go into a debate looking to accomplish, and what are the keys to a good debate question? I think what I'm hoping to accomplish is that the voter watching it gets a good sense of who the candidates are. And it's different than an interview in that we don't necessarily need to pin them down on a, on a direct answer, or I don't feel like it's, it's the venue where you're pointing out hypocrisy as you might in a, in a sit-down interview, you know, really drilling down. I think as long as the questions elicit answers, they'll let you know who the person is. That was that was it. I mean, Mark Fincham, besides being someone who was at January 6th, I mean, it was the end of a tale in which he was an election denier and said that Trump was the rightful winner and that Maricopa County's elections were, were terrible. And so asking a question about, well, you just won a primary in August in Maricopa County with essentially the same election procedures. Why do we have faith in that election? What changed? And his answer was the, the only thing that changed were the candidates, which was an answer that I thought was very illustrative. Well, what, do you enjoy doing the debates? They can be taxing. I mean, yes, they're enjoyable in that you, it's, it's being able to really spend time asking hopefully good questions of the candidates afterwards especially with that one i thought boy you know there was the the one or two questions i i should have asked but you know that that debate was so much centered on the 2020 election and i had you know one more question in the bag about the 2020 election and i thought geez do we want to ask about anything else because the office does other things besides that um, and I asked one more question that at the end about something else that I kind of regret not just staying on the 2020 election, because that's really what people were most curious about. Well, I was, I was going to ask, I, I feel like I would actually be, I would hate the answers, but I, I feel like I'd be really good at the prep. What's the prep that goes into, into prepping for a debate? I mean, the prep is every day. I mean, just staying on the, the news, knowing where, where the people stand what positions they've taken in the past. Yeah, you do a little more digging into clips and, and all that. But I mean, the, the, the best way to, to, to stay on it is to, is to know the issues just because you've lived and breathed them 
the entire cycle. Going back to your reporting a little bit before we get into Don Balls, how do you come up with your story ideas? The last few years in this position, as uh, you know, they they call me an investigative journalist. I'm on the investigative team. Sometimes it's just been an editor or the top editor telling me, "Do this. <laughs> look at <laughs> look at this wide aspect," and I try to find a, a path in through there. Before then, I wrote a lot of magazine-style features, and I would see that, you know, I would start reporting, and I kind of do it a bit now as well. When all the other reporters go away is when I like to start. You know, there's a big story. There's something major that happened. Everyone's all over it. Maybe I'll be there at some of the news conferences or early bits of coverage, but after everyone goes away is when I like to pick up on those stories and see where they go. And it's serves me a bit here, right? If I'm covering the Patriot movement or Turning Point, I don't want to do it when there's a lot of other people around. You know, the best the best stories for me are the ones where I'm the only reporter there. Often, even though these Turning Point rallies, get out the vote rallies were public, I was typically the only reporter there. We were the only outlet covering it. And I think the ideas might spring now from high-level meetings with editors telling me we think you should focus on this but how i go about doing the stories is just being out there and doing a lot of ground level reporting one of the one of your career highlights is a podcast docuseries that you did about the murder of a republic reporter a podcast called rediscovering don bowles a murdered journalist he was a republic reporter who was murdered in 1976 the podcast was largely based on both obviously what happened, but also some cassette tapes that the paper had access to. This was a very 1970s gritty kind of story. Mafia, corruption, greyhound racing. Your voice is very much, I felt like 1970s news anchor kind of voice. I felt like it was out of a movie. A lot of threads all over the place. I'm looking for Redford. I'm looking for Hoffman. I'm looking for Pacino. How long did this take to report and how much work went into it? It took much of 10 or 11 months and much of the year looking back on it i was actually talking with one of the producers of it taylor seeley who covers phoenix city hall for republic now it's like how did we do that <laughs> my editor came to me and said we have a, a a locked file cabinet that was in storage somewhere and they got a locksmith to open it and pretty soon they discovered the reason it was locked and stored away these were don bull's files and uh, my editor, Greg Burton, said, take what, whatever time you need, go in there and see if there's anything to report on. So I did. And as I started looking at the paper files, I realized I'm probably not the first reporter to go through his files. Um, but I discovered a box of cassettes. And these were like ratty cassettes, just, you know, realistic brand radio shack cassettes i mean these and they looked like they had been used over and over and written just handwriting scrawled on notes but i thought no one has done anything with these you know we weren't producing podcasts in the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s this is a time to see if there's something to be made on these so i just started popping them in my cassette player and trying to digitize them at home. And listening to them, as I mentioned in the podcast, 
I'm, I'm in the middle of a conversation. I don't know who's speaking, what they're speaking about, or when the conversation has taken place. And I had to puzzle it together. The second conversation I heard on tape one, side one, as I was labeling him, I was just going through the box. The second conversation started with a man with a very reedy voice saying, this is Don Bowles of the Arizona Republic. That good. At least now I know what he sounds like and I can go from there. So we eventually hired someone to digitize them for us, but it was going through and taking notes essentially on every conversation and trying to puzzle it together. And it didn't take too long before it seemed like there was, I mean, I heard emotion in Don's voice and there were times where you could tell he was angry or frustrated. And I was trying to figure out what was making him that way because most of the time he sounded grounded and calm. So that whatever was making him angry and frustrated, th there was something at the root of that. And it took a while to get to it, but we ended up with a story. Here's a man, a reporter who was told by a source that he was being wiretapped and that the source said, I know you've been wiretapped because I've listened to some of the conversations and here's what some of the conversations were. And Bowles thought there's no way this man would have known this had he not been listening in. And it was his quest to make these people pay that why would they get into my home you know, he felt he felt very violated. And he went after these people who had they were people in the dog racing industry who he had reported about. And if they were gonna if they were gonna get after him, if they were gonna go after him, he was gonna make them pay and suffer. And I think that was his years long quest up until essentially the end of his life is to make these these dog racing interests pay. He was murdered, his his car was bombed, he was in it. His his last words are an integral part of the audio documentary. I'm curious how doing it, it, it seemed like it affected you considerably. Well, I mean, even to the the essential thing that, you know, Don Bull's picture hangs in our newsroom. I see it every day. He's next to Charles Thornton, who's a, a journalist who died doing a story on reporters without borders in a country no one had really heard of then called Afghanistan. Um, so those are the two on the wall. And I now know what Don Bowles sounded like. I've heard him in his interviews. I've heard him be aggressive with sources. I've heard him melt when his wife was on the phone or, you know, when he's talking about his kids. I've heard him have a really cornball sense of humor. <laughs> so, like, it did feel like I got to know the guy. And my editor was telling me, like, whatever we find in there, in that Don Bowles catalog, or whatever we find in the Don Bowles file cabinet, warts and all, like, let's let's tell a story. You know, we don't need to be reverent about them. And I think some people who've, who've known the story or other fellow journalists have told me, they appreciated that, you know, we pointed out some flaws that Don Bowles had. He was a reporter who seemed to jump to conclusions a little quick, who wasn't much at given the other side necessarily the fairest shot, he seemed to have a conclusion. And until he was really pushed off that conclusion, he was going to go after you. 
you know, there's times where his reporting partners are telling him, Don, let's be reasonable here. Let's hear the man out. But if he really thought this was a bad guy, he was not holding it back. Oftentimes he was right. This was a bad guy who was trying to, to get one over on him. But we really got to, to give a fuller sense of the man other than just a guy who was blown up in Phoenix in 76. And beyond it being a true crime-esque kind of story, I, I think you said at the end something too about truth was the kind of the essential theme that held everything together, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of the, one of the mysteries or one of, there's, there's conspiracy theories about everything, and there is a conspiracy theory about who, who killed Don Bowles or who had Don Bowles yep. killed. And I think listening to this saga, listening to him be so upset at these horse racing interests, or these dog racing interests, kind of helped me understand why he thought they would be the ones to go after him. They apparently weren't. They tapped his phone and they might have had a private investigator try to find dirt on him. But all available evidence points to other people who had him killed. But this, I think the story, the fact that he, that he had this story on his mind, even up until the day he died, helped me understand why he said what he said after the bomb went off under his car. He was telling people, Emprise, Mafia, and, you know, frankly, he was in no better position to know who had killed him than anyone else laying on the asphalt. But because of the story we tell, now I know why that was on his mind that day and why he thought they were the ones who were after. Do you have a favorite type of story to cover? I think the stories are the the ones where it's there's an unexpected conclusion or it really helps you understand a person even if it's someone that a notable person who's been in the news so that you get to look at them in a different way upending expectations are always great and you know i mean what's an example sometimes well uh, there was a the governors had had started right after his uh, his election partially to get reelected because because the border is always a hot topic in Arizona he had started a border strike force well we were getting you know hints that oh maybe it's not what it was cracked up to be and we started looking into it and to be able to using the department's own records show that the border strike force in the last story we did didn't patrol the border exclusively, didn't strike and wasn't a force. That Those are the kind of stories that, that you know, sort of upend the expectations, let people know this is really what's going on behind the scenes. Years before, there was a man who, driving to California, saw a state trooper being pummeled on the side of the freeway, pulled over, he had trained himself to use, you know, a handgun effectively and shot the assailant, saving the trooper's life. This is like the good guy with the gun we all hear about. This is the unicorn of that story. And months later, he agreed to speak with me at length. Which again, like all the other reporters had gone away and he's willing to speak to me and tell me his whole story, which was 
highly unexpected that he was sort of a ne'er-do-well youth who had a lot of arrest and troubles, had had guns pulled on him in his hellion days and sort of reformed himself. And now not only had he saved a trooper's life, he very much was for gun control. He thought that if you're going to carry around a weapon, you need to be trained to use it. This is not a toy. And again, all of that to me was unexpected. Down to he had many tattoos across his body. One was of Winnie the ta- Winnie the Pooh crucified with his blood dripping into a jar labeled honey. Like, okay, this isn't the this this is a different kind of hero than I think people were expecting when when it, when it first happened. Sure. An obligatory ask of someone with the volume of experience that you have. Do you have a good example from your career of learning from a mistake that you made? There are so many mistakes. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think I learned early on, very early on, not to jump to assumptions to double check. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like a, 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 it was a small error at the time, but one of my first stories for the Associated Press, they had just gotten new freezers at the coroner's office at Maricopa County. And now I even forget what my mistake was. Did I think it was a whole body freezer or a freezer freezer for body parts? Anyway, I got it wrong. And it's like that first mistake that you have to correct just sears into you, like, make sure you double check. I'm still bad with names. I still make myself like a little cheat sheet, like a librito at an opera. Like, here's the cast of characters. Here's exactly how to spell their name so I don't get it wrong in the story. And there's a lot of double checking and triple checking in the morning before story posts online. I might be up at four or five in the morning just making sure that I got that one fact wrong or, or got the one fact right before it hits before it hits the public so that's fascinating that even someone with 30 years of experience would do that oh absolutely no i mean there's there's because there's nothing there's no easier way especially when you're going when the subjects of your stories might want to delegitimize your work the easiest way to do so is to say well look they spelled this name wrong if they got that wrong how do you trust the rest of it? Speaking of mistakes, a mistake that someone made to you was that you had a a gun pointed at you in what was an interesting story about was about a dozen years or so ago. Can you articulate on what happened? Sure. This was after the attempted assassination of Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords near Tucson. And any aspiring journalist will know when editors come out of a room to, to to look for reporters to do their ideas, run, hide under your desk. But editors came out of a conference room and said, we need to do a story on guns. So what, just a noun, the noun guns? Yes. Okay. So I just tried to find interesting people who owned guns. And one of them was a state senator who Gabby Giffords was shot on a Saturday. That Monday was the state of the state address at the Capitol. And this state senator tried to walk into the state Capitol with a gun. And they told her, no, you can't do that. It became a thing. 
I have a right as a senator to carry a gun into the governor's address. So I thought, well, that's someone interesting to talk to. And she agreed to speak with me in the state capitol, in the Senate chambers. And she showed off her gun. It was a raspberry pink gun. And she kind of posed for it. And, and as we're talking more and more, I look down and suddenly there's a red dot on my shirt. And the gun had a laser sight and she had pointed it at my chest. I had assumed that the gun was not loaded. And I assumed there might have been a safety or something like this woman wouldn't just do that. But as the interview went on, I came to discover, no, the gun very much was loaded and that the gun had no safety. We then had to decide how we handle this. Like, is that breaking news, A1 story? Senator points a loaded gun at a reporter. And I argued, rightly or wrongly, I argued, no, let's tell the story we meant to tell. Let's tell the, let's profile this senator as we wanted to. And maybe 10 paragraphs down, I'll mention that she pointed a gun at a reporter. And that's how we sort of laid it out. Once that story did come out, my brethren in the media took that, found that nugget and made that a big story. And I remember being on the evening news. We, we shared a newsroom at the time with the NBC affiliate Channel 12, KPNX TV, and they asked me to go on the six o'clock news to talk about this incident. And the longtime anchor, you know, opens the newscast saying, tonight, a state senator open, uh, points a loaded gun at a reporter during an interview. And I remember thinking, boy, it sounds so bad when she's saying it. Like at the time, it didn't quite resonate. I think later on, it was like, oh, yeah, that was really dangerous. That almost, that that could have gone another way. And maybe I would be on a wall in the Republic newsroom. But at the time, it didn't quite, the danger of it didn't quite catch. I think it was weird that weeks later, months later, when the story came out and everyone reacted to it, is when I sort of had those moments of, yeah, that 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 was really bad. But at the time, it just it just was. Yeah. Do you ever with your state? um, And I I think I would ask this of someone in Arizona and I would ask it of someone in Florida. Do you ever just throw up your hands and say, what's going on here? I mean, like, does the sun do something to (laughs) us or something? No, I mean, I think there's it's just a it's always been a place of individualism. It's been a place where you can come, you know, we've had a, a series of governors who, you know, their their campaign story is they move here with a Datsun or something and remake themselves here. There's a lot of individualism. There's a lot of rugged desert. There's a lot of spots where people move here to say, keep me out of it. We also, though, are a major metropolis with, you know, a big city. So I think it is a soup of stuff. But right. Why is it that there's a man yelling out, the newsroom building one day and at the state capitol bare-chested with a lot of tattoos wearing a, a, a furry hat with horns on his head and of course he ends up at the january 6th riot being the face of the capitol yeah it's not it's not so surprised like i i didn't expect that man would be from minnesota or nebraska of course he was from arizona and of course as it happened I had spent a lot of time interviewing Jake Angeli as we knew him. He was charged 
under his legal name, Jacob Chansley, but I happened to spend some time interviewing Jake Angeli as he would shout outside the Capitol, spouting QAnon conspiracy theories and, and anti-vaccine and anti-mask mandate. A couple of things just to wrap up here. Sure. On, on a lighter, more positive note, why is your one book about a children's TV show host? They're both about They're a children's both. TV show. I co-wrote one and, and wrote the biography of the other, The Wallace and Ladmo Show. One of the bad parts about growing up in Arizona is you have to explain The Wallace and Ladmo Show to those who didn't grow up with it. But imagine like Bozo the Clown written by Jon Stewart and John Oliver. It's like Krusty the Clown on The Simpsons, but real. Like our children's show was funny. Our children's show wasn't a like little kitty show. Adults watched it. It got higher ratings than the Today Show and Good Morning America. Alice Cooper, Steven Spielberg, The Tubes, all sort of say this show made a big difference in their lives. So, I mean, I, he was my childhood hero. And he allowed me to tell his story. And so, yeah, the, the book, Thanks for Tuning In, which was his signature a phrase in the morning. Wallace, it was great to be able to, to befriend him uh, and to be able to, to tell his story. But yeah, that show was really something very special about growing up. And it taught me a lot about looking at life through a, a, humorous, a humorous lens. Distinctly Arizona. What advice would you have for someone who says, I want to have the career that you've had? Oh, geez. Uh, again, find out early if you like it. I did. And once you like it, there's nothing else out there that would, that would match it. It is unique. You get to see a, a side of the world that most people don't. You get to follow your curiosity and instincts. Be versatile. I would tell people, get good at all of it. Breaking news, light features, long investigations, podcasts. Do as much as you can and, and be as versatile as you can. Because, right, I'm working on long-term things that I can't tell you about now. But also today, I was at a taco shop doing a very quick story about people who flip tortillas because there's a Modelo beer commercial where there's, and it's running all during the NBA playoffs, but there's an abuela type, a grandmother making tortillas. And as she flips them with her fingers at the very bottom, I noticed it says, do not attempt. <laughs> I thought, why are they telling people not to flip tortillas with their fingers? So I talked to expert tortilla makers like, well, I've done it. How do you do it? So I still like doing the major investigations, but give me the quick tortilla flipping story too. Nice. All right. The last question. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a person or group that you're not affiliated with that you'd like to salute for their good work? Oh, there are many. One, I would say, is a friend of mine, Tony Ortega. He was a, a journalist out here for the Phoenix New Times and did a lot of great work, especially on Sheriff Joe Arpaio. He was one of the first journalists to really look at Sheriff Joe Arpaio. He started something unique, which is doing nothing but reporting on Scientology, and not in the most favorable way. But he's had to hide himself a little bit. 
but he's based out of Los Angeles and his Substack on Scientology is uh, well worth reading. Wow. That, that sounds, that sounds, that sounds as fascinating as the story of a murder journalist. Certainly. Richard Ellis, thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Certainly a good oral history here. We appreciate it. And thank you and good luck with your future work. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.